the Drunk on Light podcast, the podcast that is here to remind you that there is always light at the end of the tunnel, even in the darkest of moments, to tell you that you are not alone. This podcast is for the creative who wants to share their passion with the world, for the feminist who is looking for a community of badass women, for the one who is healing, for the light worker who wants to heal the world, and for the one who loves all things spirituality. I'm your host, Aisha Noor, and I'm a poet, mental health advocate, feminist, and spiritual junkie. Together, we'll be breaking barriers, smashing stigmas, learning light lessons, and keeping it real. Hey, light lovers, and welcome back to the Drunk on Light podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to Tara, who is a male trauma therapist, and we're just going to jump right in. What does um, Drunk on Light look like for you in your life, or what does it mean to you? Sure. Um, So Drunk on Light, um, basically, I guess for me, it would mean... um, embracing my light, right? So embracing the light within me, um, honoring and healing, honoring, moving through and healing the shadow self, the darkness, but ultimately embracing the light. And, you know, as I've experienced in my own life, um, experiencing that bliss state, following your joy, you know, so I think that it's sort of, it's interesting, the word drunk, because You know, I don't drink anymore, but I, when I did, it's almost like little by little by little and you, you get more and more, um, I guess in a blissful state. And I kind of feel like the same with my own life. The more I meditate, the more mindful I am, the more healing I experience. Um, it enables me to follow my joy more, have more fun and just get into that momentum and get into that flow that yeah definitely feels like you're drunk on light it's just that like that bliss that um that just pure excitement and elation so that's sort of what it means to me and it's interesting to ask that because me experiencing that so i'm a therapist and um a lot of what i do i like to sort of pass on you know my knowledge my education my wisdom to my clients so a lot of it is about helping them also experience that, that momentum of bliss and joy and fun and really seeing life as um, that can be like a happy journey. I love that. And that's exactly, you know, it's everything that you just said. And I, for me, it's actually funny as well, calling it drunk on light because I have never had a sip of alcohol. Right. So, <laughs> you know, for the first episode, I was just like, if you're wondering why it's drunk on light, no, it has nothing to do with alcohol. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So um, you mentioned to me when we were like talking prior to this episode that you're a therapist, but for men and male trauma. What got you into that? Like, why were you interested in working with men as opposed to just, I guess, people in general or women? Right. Well, it's sort of, it's life happening. It's being open to opportunities. So I actually recently did an Instagram post about this. When I um, first started out, when I was in grad school, I wanted to be a child therapist. 
and I did my internships with children and adolescents. Like that was my plan. Um, even my first job out of grad school, I was working with uh, middle school kids, so pre-adolescent. And um, it, one thing led to another, and I left that job, and I needed a job. And the only job available was working with adults at an inpatient psychiatric facility. And at first, I just remember feeling like, I don't know if I want to do this. This is not working with kids. I really want to work with kids. And, um, but I, I needed a job, I needed money and I needed, you know, I wanted to continue doing the work that I was doing. So, um, I took the job and within a few weeks of taking that position, they, um, because of some of the trainings I had had, I was identified as a trauma therapist and I was asked to help to co-develop an inpatient, um, military program post-traumatic stress program for the military. And I was like, sure, you know, definitely I'll do this. I had, I know my grandfather's both served in World War II. My cousin it was in the Navy. So I was like, this is important. This is an important issue. I want to do this. And um, one thing led to the next. I think I was open to the experience. Um, and the military program that we co-developed, I be it just we started seeing active duty members coming in, coming straight from Afghanistan and Iraq at the time, um, and having severe PTSD. And it was just something that I just felt so honored to be able to do. I felt so humbled to do this work. And um, you know, I had developed this whole treatment protocol around it. So it just sort of Fit. And it's, again, that idea of trusting in life. I never would have imagined this if you had asked me when I was in grad school 17 years ago, would I be working with adult men primarily? And I'd be like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it's sort of one thing led to the next. And now 15 years later, I have this, um, you know, tremendous knowledge base, wisdom, expertise in, in working with this population. And I do work with women also, but mostly, really primarily, my, my practice is men. And the men that I work with these days are um, mostly law enforcement, firefighters, a lot of the 9-11 World Trade Center responders, so construction workers. So a lot of um, these men who have professions that... Um, really, I think, are conducive to being exposed to trauma. Yeah, definitely. All of those yeah. jobs, you're in some form or way or at some yes. point, you're going to be exposed to something traumatic. Um, I actually uh -huh. had a question. I was really curious. Do you find it harder to work with them or get them to open up just because of the toxic masculinity thing? Um, it's so interesting that you asked that. Like, um, I don't think of that it that way, I guess. I mean, I understand there's toxic masculinity. Um, I feel so comfortable these days working with men. So it's almost like any person who I may work with virtually or any man who comes into my office, it just, um, you know, I kind of respect where they're at. I respect that um there's probably going to be some trust stuff coming up. Um, I'm a female, they're a male. Um, mm -hmm. They may not know 
my background as far as the experience that I have had working with military veterans and police. Um, mostly, though, it's interesting. I would say most people that come to me, by the time they get to me, they've exhausted almost every other option. So, like, they've tried drinking. They've tried, you know, isolating. They've tried... Um, other forms of therapy. They've tried hanging out with their friends. Like they've tried so many different things. Nothing has worked. So, so, you know, by the time they get to me, I think they're sort of in this place of like, okay, well this or nothing. Um, so that's sort of what I've been finding most recently that it is, has been coming in. Like those are the people that are coming into the practice. So like there might be, um, they might not necessarily, love the idea that they're in therapy, but they pretty much exhausted every other option and there's really nothing else that they can think of that they can do. Yeah, because I thought that, you know, because men, their default setting is kind of like stoicism and keeping it to themselves that maybe therapy would be harder for them. For them. Like you would imagine like in the movies where they just sit there <laughs> quietly and wait out their hour as if it's mandatory. And then leave. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's true. The isolation, like usually there is a period of isolation before they get to me. Um, as far as in the therapy session, I'm pretty, I'm pretty talkative myself because I think I just understand that for a lot of people, it's their first time. Like you, they've only seen what therapy is on the movies. I'm not a person like I don't make people sit on a couch and I don't just listen to them. Like I do so much education around really normalizing trauma because it, you know, it's a response. Uh, it's a neuro. It's a neurogenic response. So when a person experiences trauma, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever, you know, it's you experience there's there's an event and it does something to your brain your brain has a response but the response of the brain is the same no matter who you are so i really do um i spend a tremendous amount of time doing um a lot of neuroscientific education to just sort of really normalize and validate the experience that it could be anyone. I mean, if it were me having had those experiences, it would be me. Does PTSD yeah. um, stem from, like you said, one big trauma or can it be, can it also come from like systemic trauma, like abuse? Yeah, it's so there are, um, so the way that it had been defined and I'll, I'll use that here because I like the terminology, although the terminology isn't so much used anymore. Um, so the idea is that there are big T and little T traumas. So big T traumas would be something, um, you know, like abuse or natural disasters or, you know, war, things that are just sort of undeniably traumatic, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what, that is a traumatic experience. It can be said on, you know, from a global perspective, that is traumatic. And then there are these things called which previously had been called little t traumas. So little t traumas could be a situation like maybe you and I are out and we're driving along in a car and we get into a fender bender. Um, for you, you might say like, oh my goodness, that was nothing. You know, thank goodness there's no damage, just a little scratch on the car. For me, I might 
be completely traumatized by the event, um, maybe because of previous experience or just maybe because for me, I perceived it as traumatic. And so it's as, so my response, my, it's basically my perception. My perception is my reality. Mm -hmm. So my perception is going to be what is real and it is going to sort of determine how I function and move through that. And my brain response is going to be that of what you would call a big T trauma. And this is why it's not really used so much more, you know, the big T, little T trauma, because the responses are extremely significant regardless of what it is. Um, the quote unquote little T traumas, they're not necessarily universal. So in the situation, the example that I used with us, for you, you, you would be like, okay, I'm fine. And you might even say, why aren't you okay? Mm. Um, which that then creates a, a whole other issue for people. Yeah. I mean, I find that even um, just talking to people, you hear them comparing like suffering or trauma or pain saying that, you know, you're, yeah. you just have anxiety, whereas I have like borderline personality disorder. So mine is worse and therefore yours is invalid or just run of the mill. And that just makes the trauma or whatever is going on like 10 times worse because invalidation and making people feel yeah. like they're crazy when they're already working so hard to like tell themselves they're not crazy. I totally so agree. I totally agree. And then that contributes to limiting beliefs, you know, so then we have these limiting beliefs about ourselves, which are really just stories that we tell about ourselves that aren't true, but we, you know, we, they're incorporated into our brain circuitry and then um, we live by them. Yeah, and there's so and then many of that, them, you know. Yeah. You don't even realize. Like, obviously, I've had one that's, like, the one major one and then a bunch uh -huh. of little ones. So I've been, you know, in the last couple of years that I've been in therapy working on the major one and I've managed to push through it. But then I was yeah. talking, I had a session, like, last week and uh, I was talking to my therapist and she's like, see, this is another one of the stories that you tell yourself. And I was like, oh, yeah. no. You know, like, you don't realize that there's probably a hundred of them that are feeding there's into so many identify yeah there's the bigger ones but then there's also those little ones that affect you yeah and the truth is and I think it's important to say um you know I don't believe that anyone is immune from trauma we're humans we're not robots we live in life we we live active lives we live relational lives so you know we all have trauma just to varying degrees yeah. so I think that's important to say because, again, you know, for me, a lot of it is about just normalizing it, like normalizing trauma, normalizing the experience and validating it. Yeah, because for some people, what um, society has normalized, they might not even realize is trauma because it might be right. It might be minor enough that they're like, OK, this is just life or that's normal. Like for the longest time, I thought what was happening to me, which was actually emotional <laughs> abuse, wasn't. I'm like, that's just my culture. That's just society. That's like, that's life. Yeah. And then when I went into yeah. therapy and um, literally on my intake form was like, have you ever been abused? And I put, I think so slash I don't know. And she asked me, right. she's like, what do you mean by you think so? You know, like, how can you not know? And then, and then I gave yeah. her a bunch of examples and she's like, yep, that's abuse. You yeah. Know, yeah, it is. It's very insidious, um, you know, how how it happens but again I think it's important to normalize it and really it's you know obviously abusive situations are not good um mm. so we should stay away from them or try to you know remove those people from our lives if possible or get help to remove those people from our lives um but yeah like 
I think sometimes it's, I think it's just also the word trauma is, is sort of a stigmatized word. Um, you know, no one wants to, you know, have trauma, but the bottom line is that we've all, we've all, we all have trauma. We all have it. It gets It's a response. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I hate these, I'm going to say two words. I don't like these two words, but I think it's a really good way to describe what happens. So when we talk about trauma and what it is, it's, it's basically we, our brain, so we have a normal response to an abnormal circumstance. So again, I don't love those two words, normal and abnormal, but it's a way to depict, you know, our brains are having a normal response, the response that they're supposed to have that, that really is protective to these circumstances that are so atypical. And, yeah. and the word trauma gets so blown up. Like, it's a scary word. So that's why a lot of people yeah. don't even use it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let yeah. alone, like, have no idea what it is. Um, you mentioned that you have a program that is, like, you mix spirituality with, uh, like, neuroscience. Can you talk about that a little yeah. more? Sure. So it's it sort of is what I do with my clients already. Um I, as I mentioned, I do a lot of teaching on neuroscience with my clients. And I also, um, I guess I should say for me, I, I started my spirituality practice, you know, a few years ago, four or five years ago. And that's when I started meditating on a daily basis. And for me, meditating daily was transformative in so many ways. In the typical ways, it reduced stress, it calmed my own anxiety. It kind of, you know, made me feel, feel good most of the time. And, um, you know, but I also had some very profound spiritual experiences from my meditation practice. And I continue to have these profound experiences. And I um, really just had such great understandings about my own reality, about um, reality in general about manifesting, about these universal laws. And as what I do in normal circumstances is that I like to research this. I like to learn as much as I can. So in my process of discovery, I um, started incorporating this into the work that I do with my clients. So I've been able to, I think really nicely and successfully sort of coalesce science. So that the sciences, um, neuroscience, sometimes biological science, sometimes um, even quantum physics. So kind of bringing that in to spirituality, which, you know, represents for me, mindfulness, meditation, presence, um, generally talking about some divine force or universe. I call, I call it God, but it's whatever anyone wants to call it is, is totally fine. Um, you know, so I kind of, I bridge those two things. And then I also incorporate eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, um, which is a highly evidence-based therapy for people who have been exposed to trauma. And I was trained in that back in 2005. So it's sort of something that has evolved and unfolded through time. But where I'm at now, when I work with my individual clients is really that. So in, in our sessions, we're talking about science, we're talking about spirituality, and we're, we're, you know, sometimes bringing in the EMDR. And 
really from a spiritual perspective for me over the past several months in my meditations, I've been sort of guided that, you know, this work, like this, this stuff (laughs) that I'm doing with my own clients individually here in New York needs to be, um, you know, accessible to more people, basically needs to be accessible, needs to be, um, talked about people need to, men in particular need to know about this so that they can heal and transform their lives because healing is always possible. Transformation is always possible. And to kind of dig down deeper at the core, my understanding is that it can really be um, defined the root by the brain. You know, our brain has circuitry that's set up. It's the circuitry is based on our limiting beliefs. It's based on our um, the historical context of our lives, of our past lives, of our, um, you know, parents' lives. It's sort of this intergenerational piece too, but it, it's really about our neural pathways and the circuitry. So the idea is if you can rewire, which we all can, there's research that indicates you can rewire your brain at any age. So if we can rewire the brain and diminish circuitry around limiting beliefs, negative thought patterns, um, repeating patterns, trauma, all of that stuff, then we can in turn build up more um, desirable connections and then we can have a completely different life. And not only can we just from a very practical and functional perspective have a different life, but from a manifesting perspective um, and a spirituality perspective, we can have... um, a dramatically different experience. So it's become really important to me to be able to share that with more people because it's, you know, I think when people know this and understand this, then um, it empowers people, right? You, you're empowered. You, you realize that you can, you can make change, you know, you can, you can do these things and you can experience total life transformation. And that's, to me, that's like the essence of all of this, right? I mean, isn't that, for me, that's, what are we here to do? I mean, what am I here to do as a therapist? Like this. (laughs) That's why I, you know, like share my writing and I wanted to start this podcast because in my darkest moments, I would see, you know, like little quotes or posts on Instagram and while they may not have like changed my life, they helped me get from like one moment to the next, like these little bursts of like inspiration and light and you know, the loneliness is one of the biggest factors. So I want mm-hmm. others to know that they're not alone and that even if all of this work just helps one person or makes them feel like they can hold on even for like one more minute, it will have been yeah. worth it. And I love what you were saying about like the holistic approach because that's what I have found in my personal recovery as, you know, very effective. I think if I had just been doing therapy, I might I wouldn't have seen as much growth as I have. through meditation and yoga and just all the things I even like pull tarot cards now it's amazing (laughs) I've seen so much growth since I got spiritual but there is this stigma around spirituality I'm sure especially in like medicine and the science aspect of it that people are like no that's too like hippy dippy it's way out there it's crazy and I I'm sure I thought about that 
I'm, I'm sure I thought that as well. I mean, if you had asked me two years ago, if I was even thinking yeah. that yoga would help my anxiety, I would have said no, let alone meditating, <laughs> right. let alone like pulling <laughs> cards, let alone working yeah. with a food emotionality coach. Like who knew there was emotionality linked to food? So, <laughs> yeah. I totally get that. I mean, I was, I was in that place, you know, several years ago, I just remember feeling like, you know, okay, I know that that stuff's supposed to be good, but it's not for me. Mm. You know, none of that's the meditation. I do Kundalini yoga, you know, um, I practice presence, I connect with nature, like I do all of these things. And years ago, I was like poo-pooing it, like, you know, (laughs) please, that's, there's no way. And, you know, um, but then you, you know, life happens and you experience things and uh, then you, you kind of can see it for yourself. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of what I do with my clients is for me, you know, I've always been a very scientific person. I've, I, I've been involved. I'm actually finishing up my dissertation, um, in, I'll be defending it in a month. So I'm, I'm all about research. I used to teach research <laughs> and statistics. So I, I'm very much scientific. And so I love being able to bridge science and spirituality. Like I love to be able to find science experiments and just different, you know, experiments about meditation and all these other different things and yoga that really speak to how it can have such a profound effect on healing. And this is stuff that, you know, the ancients knew about and contemporary science is really um, starting to validate that. So it's a lot of that that I bring into my sessions too, because I find that a lot of people, um, you know, male or female, really, they, they want to hear like, okay, well, where's the evidence of this? So it, it becomes really important. And I find that when I'm able to do that, people are able to then embrace the spiritual aspects of life of their own, incorporated into their own lives. And then they themselves can, they're open to it. And then they can experience really, really tremendous healing. Yeah, it's, it comes from personal experience because until I tried Definitely. yoga, I did not believe it. Did you face a lot of resistance though, trying to merge the two, trying to bring spirituality into um, how you help heal others? Not really because I think here's, I think where it served me. Um, most of my clients I've been with for five, about four or five years. So they've kind of watched me um, transform. So they've watched me evolve into practicing meditation. They've watched me evolve into practicing presence and Kundalini yoga. So they were able to see the results in my own transformation. And I think that that was compelling for them. And, you know, either I would share with them, Oh, you know, I tried this new thing and I think it might be helpful for you. Or they would say to me, what is this thing? What are you doing? You seem happier or you seem, um, you glow more or whatever, you know, whatever it was said. So I think for me, it just made me, made it easier. And then that enabled me to build up confidence around it. And now it's very easy. You know, now I just, this is, you know, this is, this is it. This is what I teach. This is how I do therapy. And, um, you know, hopefully it resonates with, with really the people that, that need it, you know, that need to hear it, that need to be involved in it. So you don't have to worry about like, um, you know, a boss or the program that you're working for having issues with it or anything. Well, I'm my boss. I'm my own boss. (laughs) 
yeah, so that that's probably the best part of it. But I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm self-employed, so I'm in my own private practice. So I am my own boss. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that helps because otherwise you, there would be so much red tape. Well, you know, in the past, because I, I did, I was involved in a situation years ago um, that the military program, that inpatient program, where it was cutting edge at that time. You know, that program in and of itself was cutting edge. The use of EMDR even back then was cutting edge, especially with the military. And um, similar to what I do now, I just basically presented research. I presented research. I wrote up reports. Um, you know, back then I, I had bosses and I was able to just through, again, through the science, demonstrate that this is this stuff is effective um not so much back then was the spirituality it was more the scientific um emdr that you know the evidence-based treatment that i was providing but the idea for the whole program and how the program incorporated different aspects of um you know different types of treatment i really brought in a lot of the research and a lot of the science to to sort of support my case and it was effective back then too i never thought now it's easier <laughs> Oh, I never thought that would be possible, that science would actually help you, you know, present spirituality. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's such an interesting concept. I'm thrilled that it does, because I really feel like then more people, it's more people are open to it. People want to hear science. They want to know, you know, what the science said. And that's, you know, we're, we're conditioned that way. Mm. And, and that's okay, but that's what people want to hear. This is what the research says. And, you know, again, given that I've been involved in several research studies, I, um, I've authored one, I'm about to, um, my, my dissertation is another, you know, that's coming, that's, I'm finishing that in a month, so I'm super excited about that. I, I used to teach research and statistics at the graduate level, so I have a ton of experience with the science-y research stuff, too. So I think that helps and enables me to present it, I guess. Um, but did you find that science hindered your ability to like get into the spiritual side of things like in the very beginning? Because I remember... I was and always have been very much a realist. So things would happen. I'd be like, <laughs> duh, or whatever, because it's realistic, you know. And then when I got into yoga and meditation and all of these things, looking back, I'm like, holy shit, how did I, the person who was like the most realistic in my family, go into this? Like, I still shock myself that I believe in all of these things. I've re like been only pulling cards for like maybe a month. And even though every day that I do it, I feel like called to do it. And it's so cool because the message that I get from the cards is just what I'm already thinking or feeling guided to. So it's just like a confirmation. But the fact that I'm actually doing this is like mind-blowing to me <laughs> yeah I mean I definitely noticed for me it it came in increments so um typically for me my response to situations is I will get presented with information and if it doesn't fit with you know my current thought pattern I'll reject it but I don't completely reject it because there's like, I almost feel curious about it. Like, okay, wait, why was I presented with that information? 
and maybe I should try to learn more about it. So my initial response will be to reject, but I don't reject and discard. I reject and store. Mm. And then I kind of get myself back to it. And then I go in and I look and see, okay, well, is there research on this? What does it say? What's the science saying? What are my experiences? Because that's very valuable too. And then what I will find is that I'll then accept that. I'll, I'll find the, um, the validation for it. I'll find the sound, scientific validation and the personal validation. So then I start, I'll accept it. And then, you know, out of nowhere, some other idea, you know, one of my teachers might present something to me or I might read something and another idea presents itself. And so again, it's sort of that on repeat. I reject it and store it. These days, I mean, that was back then. These days, I don't, I kind of just, I kind of have my own knowings of, you know, my belief systems about things. I'm very open to change and transformation still. Um, but I kind of, I think I'm just way more open than I was a few years ago. So I don't necessarily reject things. Like I, I really kind of look at them with curiosity and interest. So, but yeah, I remember in the beginning, it was really, <laughs> it was pretty challenging. <laughs> I still feel a resistance to some things, but it's not that mm-hmm. I don't believe they work. I believe they work for those who believe in it, not just for me right now, but that's also because, um, you know, we can go into like overconsumption mode of trying to just take in all these different yeah. types of healing, you know, prana and Reiki and crystals and meditation and yoga and just... 5,000 things, just like that. I'm sure there's yes. so many programs online. So I've heard of crystals yeah. and I've heard of Reiki and I've heard of prana and all of these things. And I've been curious about them, but I'm like, no, hold up. Just kind of master <laughs> the stuff that you're currently doing. So it's not that I don't believe in it. I yeah. just, um, at this point in time, it doesn't really make sense. And I'm like, I believe that it works for those who believe. And maybe there'll be a time where I feel called to it. But then again, yeah. we don't have to do all of these different modalities. You know, you can pick and choose and create your own like um, yeah. system and therapeutic, um, what's it called? But just thing that works for you. So it can be therapy yeah. and medication and yoga and meditation, or it can be um, uh-huh. all, you know, all alternative healing or, or just medication and therapy. It's just, it's up to you. Totally. And I totally agree with that. I I think that we, you know, every person is unique and everyone's experience is unique. So whatever the person finds, you know, obviously, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want somebody to do something that's, you know, going to hurt themselves or hurt other people. Um, you know, but whatever it is. So if you're finding that medication and crystal therapy and Reiki are your thing and that works for you, then that's awesome. If you're finding that meditation and, um, I don't know, Reiki only are what works for you, then that's awesome as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, and, you know, you find your way, you know, I've, I've delved into a lot of different things and some stuff was really powerful for me in certain phases. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily do it as much anymore. Like I, I had spent a great deal of time doing, um, mantra, like chanting mantra and, 
you know, um, mostly Sanskrit mantra. And I'm, I loved it. And for, you know, a period of time, it was so healing for me. And not that it's not anymore, because it still is, it still would be. It's just, I'm not feeling called to it as much as I used to. Now I'm feeling called to, to other things. So I think there's also that, like that, that um, as we evolve, we're called to different things and we're called to different healing modalities. I definitely know that because, you know, you, if, if you're someone who struggles with depression, you have people telling you all the time, go for a walk. And yeah. at the beginning of my depression, I was very much like, what the hell is wrong with this person? It's not as easy as just going for a walk. Some days even just getting out of bed is like a whole thing. And then these days, just like last week, I went to the beach for a walk three times and it made me feel amazing. So I don't, definitely. So it's like it's weird, this weird contradictory thing where you're on one end, you're like the angry defensive person who's trying to like fight the stigma. But then on the other end, you're like, but shit, that stuff actually works. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's interesting? And this is this is something that I teach and I've been teaching this for years, actually. It's it's sort of basic. It's basic psychology stuff. But um, we we each have our own unique coping strategies. And it's, it's based on, really, it's based on our emotional dysregulation. So if we're feeling um, anxious or, you know, frenzied or angry or any of those things, it's basically your call, you're basically said to be in a state of hyper arousal. And if you're feeling, you know, numb, we're numb, you just, you're not feeling, you're just not feeling anything. But if you're numb, detached, depressed, we call it a state of hypo arousal from an emotional perspective. And what's really interesting, you know, and so you can imagine hyper arousal is maybe up high above and hypo arousal is down low. Well, right in the middle is called, it's basic, it's called, it's, there's actually a terminology for it. It's called the window of tolerance. I didn't create this, um, but I believe it was Dan Siegel that created this. So just because I want to make sure there's reference to that, but, the window of tolerance is this place, it's this optimal emotional arousal zone, okay? So when, and that's where we want to be because we feel good. We feel really good in that space. And oftentimes when we talk about coping strategies, coping strategies need to be used sort of in a directional way. So you wouldn't use the same coping strategy if you were way up above hyper aroused mm -hmm. as you would if you were way down below hypo aroused. Sure. Um, so for instance, if someone is hypo aroused and they're feeling depressed, they're down below and they do something and someone says, oh, go take a walk. Oh, go relax. You'll feel better. It's actually counter, um, basically counter indicated because if you go for a walk and relax, you're just going to drop yourself down lower. So you're not going to the wind. You're not, you need to go up. Okay. So if you're, because the goal is to get to the middle. Mm. And um, I usually have a diagram that explains this, but um, if you Google search window of tolerance, it's, it comes up. So when people talk about coping strategies, it becomes really important for people like to teach that. I teach that, you know, what direction do you need to go in? Do you need to relax and come down or do you need to activate and go up? Mm. Because you want to get into that middle zone. So for you, walking might relax you. For me, walking might activate me. Mm -hmm. So if I were depressed and I went walking, I'd probably feel better because I know it activates me. 
Whereas for you, it made you feel it worse. It didn't work. And, you know, again, we're all unique. We're all different. So I really, you know, this, again, it's something I teach in my therapy sessions with people is that you really, you know, coping strategies, there's millions of them, but I can't prescribe your specific coping strategies for you um, or for anybody because I'm not that person. And it's really about kind of self-reflecting and self-assessing and figuring out where you are. But I also think teaching it that way helps people set themselves up for success rather than failure, because in your situation, you probably felt bad about yourself. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm walking and I'm depressed and that's not making me feel better. Why not? Um, and that's <laughs> sort of, I see that as sort of like a setup, but you know. <laughs> I think I didn't even try walking. I would just go into the defensive, like, why are you telling me what to do? You don't know our experience. Right. <laughs> but it's important to, I guess, yeah. realize that um, we can grow and we can actually accept the fact that walking works, even though totally like, yeah. Uh, even though there's this reverse, not stigma, but almost like, you know, you I hear this so much. It's like, don't tell a depressed person to go on a walk. And then when I do go on a walk and I'm feeling up or down, it works for me. But more specifically, a walk in nature and not like a yeah. walk just around the neighborhood. No. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> I think it's all the things added together, but it's just about balance Definitely. and change and realizing that as you change, you don't have to be ashamed of your coping mechanisms or the ones you had before yeah. because they are what got Very. you through that time. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's important to know ourselves and really like self-reflect and know what works for us, what doesn't work for us and to do the things that work and to maybe put the things that don't work on, on the shelf and maybe come back to them later. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was such an interesting no chat. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For I really appreciate on. it.